You are listening to Mommying While Muslim podcast, where hosts Uzma and Zeba share their personal stories of mommying in a post 9-11 world. This podcast is designed with the Muslim American mom in mind, so grab a cup of coffee and pull up to their table. Assalamualaikum, everyone. Welcome to another episode of Mommy One Muslim Podcast. This is Ozma Jaffrey. And this is Zeba Hassan. And, you know, we are all collectively dealing with so much right now. Um, and you'll probably hear that stress in my voice. Like, I'm not sleeping, Ozma. Like, I am having crazy dreams. My immune system is shot. Uh you know, it's just really overwhelming. But the only thing I'm going to say is I'm going to say one word and then I'm going to one name and then I'm going to let you take over. But let's talk today about Hisham Auratini and go from there because I got to tell you that really hit me in such a way that I'm still kind of reeling from it. So Ozma, can you tell our audience a little bit about this young gentleman and what the impact he's having right now on our community, what the impact is having on our community? I don't know if it's the impact he's having on our community or the impact the community has had on him or what the world has had on him. him. And that I think leads right into our episode for today. So for those of you um, who don't know Hisham Awartini and two of his best friends, two of his best friends from Ramallah. um, So they grew up in the West Bank and went to a Quaker school in Ramallah. And like their whole life, they have been best friends, according to his mother, Elizabeth Price. If you have not heard any interview by Elizabeth Price, please look it up because that is every mother's heart song and every mother's goal to be that kind of a saber, patient, grateful woman. I don't know what religious affiliation she has, but I want to grow up and be Elizabeth Price because she has such resolve after what has happened to her son. Um, So these three best friends were walking outside of one of their grandmother's neighborhoods after Thanksgiving, I think it was November 25th, and a man came out. Two of them happened to be wearing kafiyas, and all three were speaking Arabic because they, hello, grew up in Philistine, so they're going to be. So a man came out, said nothing, and shot all three of them. And Hisham was on the ground. Of course, one of them was able to run away because he thought the other two were dead. And he's like hobbling and jumping over fences, trying to get to safety and was able to call 911 and get help. Hisham tried to dial his phone, but his hands were so bloody that he could Mm -hmm. not do so. And Hisham is the one who, when he was shot, the bullet apparently went through his thumb and straight to and lodged into his spine Mm -hmm. at his chest level. So now we can't remove that bullet because this isn't Black Panther and we don't have whatever that special metal is where you replace the ball and fix the spinal injury. We don't do that in real life. We cannot do that in real life. So as a result, Hisham is paralyzed below the chest. He was a student at Brown University. So he's an Ivy Leaguer. He was Mm -hmm. a major in math. And most importantly, he was a best friend and he was a son and he was 20. He is. He's not was. He is. And so um, as his mom and Hisham say, if this brings light to the plight of Palestinians and the Palestinian diaspora, then they're really happy. Um, and so to think that you could paint this in a positive light is just so amazing and goal worthy, but it also shows really graphically the effects of the media, media violence our government's violence, other government's violence towards Arabs, the Arab diaspora, 
Muslims, Islamophobia, all of it has resulted in this. And I hold our government responsible. I hold our media responsible. And I'm praying that no mother and no student has to go through something like this again. But I don't know that I can say that because in a month and a half, we had a six-year-old stabbed to death in Chicago. And then we had this young man who's so bright and so full of promise and so active, now paralyzed below the chest. So it sounds kind of like a soapbox, but what are your thoughts about this? Because you have a kid in college and mm-hmm. you've experienced like gun violence on campus already, Zabo. Yeah, no, it's definitely something that um, hits close to home. And for some of our, our kids, I can only speak obviously from my perspective and my children, um, is that they feel powerless, right? They're just like, how come we can't speak out about this? Why is it that because our last name is Hassan, you know, like that, this is something that's part of our everyday. And I can't wear, you know, Muslim garb or Palestinian garb to show my support, because I don't know how this is going to be received versus the other side, not feeling the same type of fear that our children have on these consequences. And to your point, it really is the dehumanization. Um, It's the words that they use. It's how they describe our children that really become become problematic. And which is why we are really focusing on this particular series so that for our non-Muslim listeners, and we have a lot of them, for you guys to at least listen, hear, and try to understand what the other side is. And, you know, while actual genocide is taking place in Palestine, you know, our American universities are testifying that their students are being threatened by genocide here at home. And as a college, you know, age, um, having that student that's college age, it really, really impacts me and makes me stressed out, you know, because of the presence of pro-Palestinian student organizations and protests because they're using their voices while the other side are lying. And it's been found that they're lying about the 40 beheaded babies to confirm there were two confirmed dead Israeli babies, but we are facing over 12,000, 12,000 dead Palestinian babies. We all agree that the murder of babies in any capacity, the murder of children are, is abhorrent, and we should not, not be even remotely saying that they're collateral damage, right? And we're, but here in America, the land of the free, our government is policing our speech. They're refusing to take a side. They're showing our children that you know their voices as American Muslim children are not do not matter. What information is everyone witnessing and what stories are creating around this genocide? Like what is that 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 talking piece? So we just talked about a boy whose life has changed because of a bullet in his spine. Today we have Dr. Sosan Jabara. She's a national board certified educator whose research on equity work and Arab Muslim advocacy talks to us about disinformation, misinformation that results in dehumanization. She is currently working on national and international equity-centered projects with Google and the National Board Association, and she is a Pulitzer Teacher Fellow. We are especially pleased to acknowledge her award as Cook County Teacher of the Year and one of the fi- one of the 10 finalists for Illinois State Teacher of the Year. We are so grateful and thankful to re- to welcome another Chicago Chicago slash New Yorker, Dr. Jabber here on Momming While Muslim. Thank you so much for joining us um, and talking about this very important topic. 
Thank you. Thank you for having me. I have so much to say just based on the introduction already. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, we'd like to kick off the podcast by asking a little bit about your momming story first, whatever you're comfortable sharing about your kids. And then how do you rule the roost? What's your momming philosophy? Yeah, so I guess I'm the mom of three beautiful children. They're my everything. My oldest daughter is 25. Um, my young, my, and she's an architect and graduated from university a few years ago. Um, my middle son is 20, and he's currently a college student. Um, so I feel the story of Hisham very, very closely. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, my youngest is, is a junior in, in high school. Um, we currently live in the largest Arab slash Muslim population mm-hmm. in the country. And in that same community where one of the three schools in our district is 70% Muslim, my daughter was asked to apologize for 9-11 in front of her entire English class. And so the hate in our community is so I I live close to the community that Wadi Al-Fayyumi, the six-year-old boy that was stabbed 26 Mm -hmm. times is from. And so uh, I think the hate in our communities, the misunderstanding in our communities is so tangible and so real that our children across the board are feeling the implications of it. And I and I think, Uzma, you said you hold our government accountable. I hold our schools accountable too. I yes. hold our schools accountable for, for really failing our kids because most of America, most of the conversations I've had, even with educators who teach high populations of students where our communities live and reside and take up space, don't even know the difference between an Arab and a Muslim. And yes. so kids who are Arab Muslim, kids who have Arab looking qualities are all being implicated and treated differently because of 9-11, because of what's happening in Palestine right now. I don't know that people really know who we are in order for them to differentiate, even if they want to really target Palestinian children or Muslim children, depending on what the climate is in, the, in, pol- in politics in the world. Um, yeah. And that's really unfortunate. Yeah, absolutely. Oh. And the pervasive ignorance, um, people recognize how ignorant they are about the demographics of Muslims and Arabs, but they don't, they're not taking that extra step to actually look it up. And they're not using the resources that we've built in order to educate them because God forbid they actually ask us, you know, how we want to identify ourselves, how we want to be identified because they've already decided in their mind, the hundred year old tropes are what they're going to stick with because that's what's comfortable. But we'll get to that. Um, Tell us a little bit about your family background and how you got into education. And the third prong of that is what's a Pulitzer teacher fellow? So I um, come from Danyasin, which is the first village to be ma- to be entirely massacred in 1948 in Palestine. My grandfather, who was 15 at the time, was one of the few survivors. He's 90 today. He's with, still with us. Oh, that with him, uh, length of life. And oh, yeah. he's been a very integral part of my upbringing in a lot of ways um, because growing up, we were, I always say we grew up in a very Palestinian home in Brooklyn because when you're mm-hmm. refugees, you don't have much to hold on to besides yes. those things that keep you keep your identity alive. And so my parents were very intent on ensuring that we were very close to both our faith and our culture. And we understood that our conduit to liberation and seeing justice in the world was through our education. And so every decision they made, I always say my life story is carved on my father's hands because he always oh. worked with his hands and he really did uh, do everything in his power um, to give us the best education, moving state lines to go from one school district to the other and to put us in Islamic schools when he felt like we were older and we were starting to lose some of the uh, language and things like that. And so he really wanted us to hold on to that. And so everything he did um, in his entire life, every decision he and my mom made was to really center our education 
with the intent that it would really um, give us the opportunity to advocate for justice. Um, so that's what I grew up with. And that's how I raised my children. And so my children, all three of them are super active um, in the community and, and raising awareness for the community, not just for Arab and Muslim um, causes, but for the Black Lives Matter, for the Southern border, for Native American rights. They're very well informed and aware and acting for justice across the board because we have been raised to believe and really inculcate Martin Luther King's kind of saying that injustice anywhere is a threat to justice everywhere. And so that has become like a core value in our family through generations. And I think that's where in this current climate, where as an educator in schools and an edu educational leader and an administrator being directly targeted for my Palestinian identity, um, I've had the ADL lobbying at my board of education for three months, <laughs> have my contract revoked because I'm Palestinian which means I have to automatically be anti-Semitic, right, in the American context. Right. And so I think I always, anytime I experience something in schools, my first question always goes back to like, if this is how I'm feeling as an adult, yes. how, do, how are, how are our children feeling the implications of this politicism and weaponizing of our identity? Um, and it's so real and it's so tangible. And so when I when I decided to do my doctorate, my focus was the experiences of Arab American and Muslim students in historically homogenous school districts. And the stories that I discovered and unveiled um, through my research were just mind blowing. And the reality is too that there really isn't a lot of reporting. And so we hear the stories of Hisham and Wadia, and those are more extreme stories where extreme violence was used. But the reality right. is our kids are the victims and the receivers of curriculum violence every day. Yes. One in three Arab and Muslim students is the receiver of violence and marginalization from a teacher in their school which is something that a lot of kids don't have to deal with in addition to the bullying and the other things that they deal with from their peers, in addition to social media. We keep talking about the social emotional health of our kids post COVID. Our kids are feeling that tenfold and many of them are, are, are shrouded with <laughs> the invisibility of being considered white on the census. And so we don't even have any information, but they're hyper visible when it comes to the marginalization and the bullying from all, from every angle. Um, and so it's really taking a toll. And so I, I think that there's just so many, there's, this conversation is so deep and so layered, right? Because it's political, it's educational, it's social, it's social from like internal kind of, we as Muslims and as Arabs in the country, um, banks calls us failed citizens. And it's because yes. the community has never allowed us to really grow into the American citizenship, regardless of how many generations of Arab and Muslim are here, right? Because we know that Muslims came the inception, you know, 40% of the country. Yeah, 40% of Black America of slaves. Was, was were Muslims. Yeah. 16, were Muslims. And so when we talk hmm. about Islam in this country, we are definitely from the forefathers and the builders, and this country in, in many ways was built on the backs of, of Black Muslims. But yes. we don't acknowledge any of that. And so there's just such a deep, elevated fear to push an agenda because we know that political elections in our country have always elevated fear to bring people to the ballot. And then the last three elections have hyper-focused on terrorism and the face of yes. terrorism like us in this room. And that has deeply impacted our children and our communities and silenced us in ways that I don't know if we can say that any other community really has experienced what we've experienced in a lot of ways, because there is conversation about the marginalization of other communities. There is conduits for advocacy. But when it comes to Arab and Muslim conversation, 
I always say for whatever reason, and I don't understand it, it seems to be a red line. And I'm a part of many, many communities, professional learning communities, whether it's the Google Learning Community, I'm a part of the uh, Our Voice Alliance Learning Community, I'm a part of several communities. I've spoken at over 70 conferences in the last year. One of the largest conference I spoke at had 22,000 teachers from all over the world. And in any space that I've ever been a part of, when I speak about Arab and Muslim experiences, people are always surprised. And that always surprises me (laughs) because so little is known and there are not many people who look like me in those spaces having that conversation for many reasons, not because we don't exist, because we do. I started an Arab American Educators Network that's 500 teachers strong, but there's a lot of fear around these conversations and having these conversations. And I'll say like, I'm the first person to admit there's so many macroaggressions when you do speak up in the professional learning community from teachers and administrators by teachers and administrators. So Pulitzer has um, a cohort that they run every single year. um, And it really does focus on um, covering and integrating uh, stories that are not publicized in the mainstream media and community. And so a Pulitzer fellow is a teacher that goes through a one-year kind of training program uh, cohort in order to really elevate uh, stories in the news that are national and international and bring those to the surface to help uh, eliminate marginalization in communities and to promote um, the elevating of stories of marginalized communities and other things that we intentionally hide in schools. Mm -hmm. And so it is really very much in line with the um, hidden stories and kind of hidden communities and elevating silence voices um, across the board. And so it was a one-year intense training uh, where you produce a unit and uh, kind of implement it. And then I'm going back actually next week to the new cohort to present and talk about my experiences and share some of those experiences. And you become kind of a part of a national cohort of teachers who've gone through the program. And I love that because, you know, information, in my opinion, starts with the teachers. So the more that we have visibility and come out of our own individual silos to be able to provide that perspective. Thank you so much, Dr. Jabber, for doing that work. You know, we've had a lot of researchers and experts here, you know, talk about Islamophobia and our kids. Obviously, we've experienced it um, with our own children. What are you as an expert in that field right now, seeing or hearing after the events that have happened on October 7th. Obviously, we can go back decades, we can go back centuries, but what we're going to do is, you know, fine tune it a little bit um, and talk about this particular issue. What are you seeing or hearing amongst um, the kids um, after the October 7th um, situation? So much. I think, and this is what I've, my conversation has been across the board. Like we all can acknowledge, like you said, that this has started way before October 7th and Palestinians have experienced genocide and massacre for, for decades and generations, right? Like this isn't the first massacre of Palestinians, maybe more extreme than ever because there, there's an intention to wipe them out. And that has been very vocal and very explicit. But I think the difference is that social media has brought that to the finger fingertips mm-hmm. to the forefront. And we're seeing the reality and not the Fox 5 News reality of what's happening right. in the field. And that's that's changing the tides. And I think as a result of the change, and I always, and people are like so happy that the tides are changing. And I'm like, yeah, it only took 20,000 people for the tides to change, mm-hmm. to die, which is unfortunate. And I think that that's not a win in any shape or form, but the reality is the tides are changing. And as the tides continue to change and we see more and more people supporting the Palestinian liberation and um, self-determination, the fight for self-determination, I think we see the Zionist lobby getting stronger and louder. And so the silencing tactics are 
more aggressive than they've ever been on every platform. This is the first time in my career as a teacher with 28 years of advocacy for Palestine and other causes where I see entire districts issue letters in support of Israel. Yes. Bills on on the on the floor and Capitol Hill to deport our, all Palestinians. That has not been anything that we have seen historically. We see bills and laws, a law that was just passed saying that anti-Zionism is anti-Semitism, right? Like we're seeing Mm -hmm. the anti-BDS law that's been passed by 26, uh, adopted by 26 different states that don't allow for civil disobedience, which is such a big part of our American history. So we're seeing all of these things that are silencing people from criticizing the state of Israel in America. You can criticize the American government all you want, (laughs) but you can't talk about and criticize the Israeli government in America, which is so absurd. I mean, anybody who will just stop to think about it will realize the silencing tactics that are so intentional. Um, school curriculum has really, really played uh, into that in so many different ways. And I always say, if we think about the dehumanization that takes place for Arab and Muslim communities, the only places that we often come up in curriculum is 9-11, the mm-hmm. Ottoman Empire right? Yes. Um, And in most schools, we did like a kind of informal research. And we found that in most districts where there's high populations of Muslim and Arab students, the novel to meet the cultural responsiveness requirements is the kite runner. And the Mm -hmm. kite runner, he's not an Arab. And his the Muslim Islam that he portrays ties very much into mainstream American media, Islam, which is what people wanted to hear, which is why the book came out right after 9-11. That's what people needed to hear and wanted to read. Um, But it's kept it's it and it's being taught by teachers who don't have any better understanding of who we are as a people. And so they're not they're not teaching it as a counter story. They're teaching it as the story. And for many kids who have not interacted authentically and human with like had human interactions with Muslim communities, it becomes the only window they have into who we are. Yes. So if we think about the implications of that, it is working to elevate fear. It is working to other Muslims and Arabs. It is working to, and, and many teachers in our schools have also been socialized by many of these same curriculum systems. And so they don't know better either, because if you're learning about Arabs and Muslims in this way in school, then you turn on your news and you're watching the dehumanization of Arabs in, 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 in one-sided single story of Arabs and Muslims across the board, whether it's talking about 9-11 every single year and the way it's taught in schools every single year, right, as a religious war. And we're constantly talking about how Islamic values are countering American values in every possible way because we don't have an understanding about what Islam is really about, right? And then all of a sudden, too, on the news, you're seeing things like this is Israel's 9-11. So we're conflating and leveraging all the feelings that people in America have towards at that time, 9-11 yeah. and the fear in order for us to continue funding and politically supporting this war. There's so many different issues with that altogether. And so we have directly contributed to the uh, feelings of this is deserved for the Palestinian people and the feelings that, you know, even even with the tides changing, there's still so much deep rooted support for people because of these kind of understandings that have been ingrained through media, through curriculum and nothing to counter that. Because every time someone does speak up, they are silenced, like, you know, shows are canceled. Authors have, are getting their contracts revoked. They're getting their books pulled back. I have several author friends whose school visits have been canceled or they've been censored. They've been asked to send their slides and their slide decks in in advance to ensure that they're not talking about anything Palestinian. And if they are, they're being canceled. 
people have lost contracts in, in, in different professional spaces, whether it's doctors, college universities, people are being attacked, students are being attacked left and right. Um, and we see Hisham as a primary example of that. And that's a more extreme example. But like even in my daughter's school, they're, co- they're not even allowed to show anything that represents their solidarity or their identity. And that in and of itself defies everything we know is necessary in educational spaces. We keep talking about meeting the social emotional needs of kids, trauma-informed practices, all of these different things that we say are absolutely necessary for kids to make academic gains in schools. And they apply to everyone except our children. And in no professional space, because our kids are not recognized on the census, is anybody having conversations about how this invisibility and this erasure of their lived experiences and identity in curriculum and in practice is impacting their academic gains and just their feelings of belonging and inclusion in school. Are you a fan of the Momming Well Muslim podcast? We've got something special just for you. Join us on Patreon and support the incredible mama's voices behind this empowering show. With just the cost of a cup of coffee per month, you can help us reach our goal of having 100 patrons by the end of the year. Let's come together and uplift these amazing voices. Join our community on Patreon today. This month's episodes are sponsored by Guidance Residential. Guidance Residential is thrilled to also partner with Muslim women professionals for an empowering workshop titled Home Ownership for Muslim Women. With a global community of over 800 million Muslim women, this event is going to be held on December 14, 2023 at 6 p.m. Eastern Time and aims to provide essential insights and tools for women's journey towards financial independence. Join Guidance Residential in supporting this impactful initiative and empowering women to navigate home ownership with confidence. You can click on lu.ma slash OK6AEG34 for a $15 webinar, sign up and be a financially independent woman who also owns her own home. Right. And so in a time where we're having these conversations in full force for everybody else and our kids are most in need of it, we're not acknowledging that. And as the country that is financially backing this genocide in ways that no other country is, where my tax dollars are being used to support the genocide of my own people, and I'm having such a hard time reconciling my Palestinian American identity and understanding how to navigate that as an adult, and our children really need to have these conversations they're being silenced in the most aggressive ways. Um, Because when a school issues a letter in support of Israel, they're basically negating the feelings and lived experiences and humanity of Palestinian children in that district altogether. You're basically saying that the humanity of those Palestinian children that you serve does not matter as you support a country that's literally murdering and and ethnically cleansing their people. And I don't know if people have stuff to just think about the implications of that. And every time I've tried to host the conversation in districts, it's always like, it's too political. Well, you're politicizing our identity. The Ukraine wasn't political. George Floyd wasn't political. The Southern border wasn't political, right? But Palestine is political for whatever reason. And people feel like it's so complex because we have said that it's so complex when it really isn't complex at all. It's very simple. Yeah. Those stories have been made up because the media has kind of driven that based on what our government is telling them to do. So I don't even believe in a free press in this country. I never have, not as a kid when we had three channels, not now that we have a bazillion and 24-hour news cycles. I just don't trust them because what when you're saying the invisibility of Arab Americans, because... And I want to assure you that a lot of us had that invisibility in schools, which is why the schools, I think, feel comfortable sending out this pro-Israeli like solidarity statements is because we always had to circle white. 
because there was nothing for South Asians and there was nothing for Middle Eastern North Africa. Like that has become more common now, but I still haven't seen it in schools or at least at my kids' schools. I know that my kids, I had to have a conversation with them to police their speech at school because they're like, oh, all these kids are like wearing Israeli flags. I know the second my kid put a kafia on, he's going to be targeted and I'm going to get pulled into the office, even though I've encouraged him, feel free to express yourself and let's see what happens. But he doesn't want to rock the boat because he's a boy. It's because professionally, in our work environments, in our school environments, if we say anything pro-Palestinian, like you said, pro-Palestinian automatically means anti-Jewish. No, it doesn't. It, it is, it, it's anti-Semitic. No, it isn't. Because Palestinians, for the record, are also Semites. So if you're anti-Palestine, then you're actually an anti-Semite. And nobody sits to think about that either. But like these charged waters, how do we as professionals, how do our kids as students navigate that in school? Because I got to tell you, it was heartbreaking to me. One of my children asked to go see a psychiatrist. They were like, it is not, therapy is not enough. I think I need medication. And we went and the therapist, uh, the psychiatrist was like, so why are you sad? Because this child was like, I'm really sad. And I, I don't have anybody I can talk to. And they were like, the psychiatrist was like, why are you sad? And my child who I have raised, and I tell all my kids to be loud and proud and to communicate with me. And I think I do a good job of that was like, I'm too scared to say, and we assured them then that, hey, this is a safe space. And the psychiatrist like, no, you can tell me anything. And my child said, I'm sad about Reza. Nowhere else could this child express that. And so I think because the environment is so charged, how, what do we tell our kids that's correct without suppressing even further their identities and their um, proclivities towards Palestine? You know, there's no quick solution to this because we're talking about decades of branding and decades mm -hmm. of silencing and decades of this like work to really create this very, very fearful image of who we are to the point where even our children are afraid. But I keep telling our community and I've had so many conversations with community leadership, like we are in America. And I think that's, if you're in Jordan, if you're in, uh, uh, unfortunately, many of our Muslim countries, you don't have the liberties that are afforded to us that we have here in the United States. We have democratic rights like everyone else. And yes, it's scary, but there's power in numbers and there's a lot of us too. And so like I have been lobbying in our local community every single month. We have been showing up at the board meetings with a superintendent who literally rolls his eyes at us every time we speak. But we're going in large numbers and we are insisting that the curriculum needs to change. As an educator in a building, I my my voice is is silenced in a lot of ways because I can't speak because it's a conflict of interest. But I know and everybody in education knows that the the squeakiest wheel gets the, the most oil. And the squeakiest wheel is the parents, right? Parents control our educational systems and there's power in numbers. We need our parents in our community. Whether you have parents, if you're a parent of a child in the district or if you're just a community member paying taxes. What schools teach impacts our community and our culture of the communities. It impacts every single one of us. We need to organize and we need to start to really run for board of education positions, run for village positions, have a seat at the table, go be a part of bilingual committees, be a part of parent advisory committees that are mandated by, by state and by law. Have, have a voice in what the curriculum looks like and lobby. Our, ch our children... Adolescent development will tell us that children just want to belong and they want to fit. Many of our kids should not have to put themselves in a place where they stand out to advocate for themselves. 
And like you, I am always telling my kids to be loud and proud. But the reality is that for many kids, that's a scary thing because they're already, their names make them stand out. Their hijab makes them stand out. Their skin color makes them stand out. Their prayer makes them stand out. Fasting in Ramadan makes them stand out. They already stand out in a lot of ways and they're being bullied for it by adults in the building and by children. And so asking them to stand out even more by self-advocating is a really big ask. But parents have nothing to lose. And it doesn't require a lot of parents to go speak up. You need a few parents with some talking points. We have rights. Our children have rights. Everything that is being implemented, especially post-COVID, especially post-George Floyd, there are laws that protect our kids from these things. There are laws that protect our kids from letters that are being issued in support of Israel. But the communities that are speaking are not us. And so we are not lobbying within our rights and within our laws for us to advocate for our children. This should not be happening in any way, but we're allowing it to happen. And so I think what we need to be doing right now is really trying to impact the long-term curriculum, which isn't going to happen because you have teachers who also have been, like I said, socialized by these curricula, so they don't even know how to really interact with a different curriculum and wouldn't know how to teach it if it came, on, if it came across their table. So the work is long-term work. But that is the work that we really need to be focusing on and doing. We need to be, I keep saying, my radical dream is no longer for my children because every single one of my children can tell you story upon story of their marginalization as students in schools. Whether it's at middle school, elementary school, or college level, every level that they've engaged in, they have had their stories and that they can share. Where I could probably write a book just from my own children's experiences. But my radical dream is for my grandchildren. They yes. cannot come into a world that is this politicizing this, that is politicizing their identities and weaponizing their identities to the point where they are seen as subhuman or not human at all. And people feel very comfortable treating them in ways that they would not dare treat other children. That is not acceptable. I won't have it. And so this is why I speak to teachers, because if you teach a teacher, you educate an entire village as an educator. Yes. I am interacting with 120 kids every single year easily. 120 kids I've been teaching for 20. This is my 25th year that I'm in schools. That is a lot of children that I have interacted with. And so there's no way that you can convince me that teachers don't have the ability to and the push and the power to really implement change and, and, and make this look different for our grandchildren. No, you know, um, I 100%, I love everything that you're saying. And so for people like myself, right, or, or like, I, like I, I can't speak for Uzma, what are some we can't change the world overnight. We just can't. What are some things that are tangible to do items that we can do to kind of start moving forward? Like maybe five simple things that we as parents, you know, as educators, as active members in the community, or maybe not even that active, what are some things that we can do right now? to kind of help humanize what has otherwise been dehumanized. I am insisting in my children's school that they host some kind of event where they bring in speakers to talk about the other perspective. Because right now, most of America is immersed in one-sided perspective. They haven't even seen or heard. And many people would like to believe and think because it kind of serves the political agenda that this started on October 7th. And so just having conversations about how this is decades long and, and much, much further historically um, than October 7th is enough to start humanizing and having some of those conversations and contextualizing, right? And equating. Um, schools should be doing work to really interrogate 
some of these conversations too that are like looking at media and how the media has represented versus some of the media that is out there that is really pro Palestinian and pro Islam and pro all of these different things. Like there's a whole movement, the not in our name movement, right? Like even mm-hmm. bringing the panel of a a Jewish American from Jewish Voice mm-hmm. for Peace who are having these conversations. We need to have immediate conversations that at least plant seeds of there is another story that has been silenced, yes. right? That's the first step. I think we need to be insisting about our voice being in- incorporated into conversations that are happening in schools. And when schools are saying this is too political for us to bring it in, you're being political when you're not bringing it in. You're, yes. ma- you're being a gatekeeper and you're making a political choice when you're deciding that this conversation is not important enough for it to take space in your school's system. Even though our kids are experiencing it, every child, whether you're Arab Muslim or not, they're experiencing it through social media and they're aware of it. And if we are fooling ourselves to think that kids care about similes and metaphors at a time when there's a genocide happening in the world, yes. we're not addressing it, then we're not, we should not be in education altogether. Um, so we have to be insisting that in our in our communities and talking to community leaders, start with your building principles. Um, if you don't get anywhere, go to your superintendents. And if they're refusing, Go to the Board of Education and insist within your rights that these current events need to be addressed. And just the same ways that we kind of activated communities to support the Ukraine when the Ukrainian war was happening, I think that we need to be thinking about ways that we can support the, from a humanitarian perspective, regardless of where we stand on political lines, the Palestinian people, because that is who needs the support right now. And we are sending billions and billions of dollars to Israel as a country. And so just having those deep conversations, I think the other part of it, too, is ensuring that Arab and Muslim kids do have a space where they can affinity space, right? Like we need to be creating in our masajid, in our communities, affinity spaces for our children to get together with other kids who look like them in order for them to have the support that they need and feel like they can be their whole selves somewhere, right? That is so important for me as an adult. I have my my um, space is where I go and I recharge my battery so I can go into another hostile environment the next day, every single day. Um, because without that kind of recharging of the battery, then you're depleted. And that's dangerous for our children to be depleted and to be in hostile places. And so it becomes very important for us to create and provide spaces for them where they're around other kids who look like them, who are experiencing things like them, and they can come together and just process. And if there are professionals who are there too, to help them support these circles, these healing circles, right? That's what we call them, um, to help them heal and and figure out how to continue being okay or semi-okay in such hard, difficult times. Because I think I'm not okay. We're not okay, right? People who ask, we're really, this is, I can't recall a time where I've ever, and I, and I feel like just every morning I wake up and I'm like, I'm afraid to pick up my phone and look. I'm afraid to go to work and deal with another situation because every day I'm walking into something where my Palestinian identity is being weaponized against me as an administrator. And every day I'm having to defend a post or defend an action or speak to how I'm going to evaluate a Jewish teacher because I evaluate teachers in my role or like all of these silly accusations simply because I am a Palestinian American Muslim. Right. And so, like, I can only imagine how our children and, and like I we got recordings for the Arab American Educators Network of a teacher just saying to kids like, you deserve this because Palestinian people walk around knifing people left and right. And so, like, and forcing the child to apologize, a Palestinian student in a classroom with several Palestinian students. So I think reporting things is also super important. That's something we need to be doing, because right now. I don't know that there's data that proves that we have a problem altogether, right? Because again, I think whether you look at 
Palestinian or Muslim histories, we've been silenced historically. And so we are often afraid to speak up and speak out. And so there isn't a lot of actual formal data. So organizations like CARE and Pali Legal are collecting data to prove how the impacts of the, the political support and American political support is impacting Palestinian American and Muslim American children, and Arab American children across the board. So we need to make sure that every incident, whether we feel like it's a small incident or not, is reported. Hold your schools accountable for their inaction or their misinformation or disinformation or all of these things that they're doing. We cannot continue to just stay quiet as these things are happening, right? Um, and then also, like I said earlier, take space in your districts wherever there is space for parents. Um, show up and speak up. We can't, there's nothing that they can do to the parents. You can be that annoying parent. It's okay. And there could be a lot of annoying parents. If there's enough annoying parents, and I say annoying with air quotes, because you're not annoying, you're within your rights. But if there's enough parents making noise, they have to listen. They have to listen. So we need to, we need to really activate our voices across the board and, and also insist that schools, like I'm insisting in my kids' district and in my own district that I'm working in, that we have affinity spaces for kids in schools and that we identify people that are safe for the kids to go to immediately if they feel like they need support throughout the school day. We have to have those people in the buildings now more than ever. Um, so those yeah. are the things, unfortunately, nothing that we can do right now is immediate. Everything has been so long-term that the solution is long-term, but we can't keep waiting and we can't let this fire die out. Like I keep saying all these lives that are, that are being lost, all of these, and, and we talk about 22,000, I think today the numbers were, that's not accounting for all the bodies that are under the rubble and all the bodies that have blown to bits and they don't even have the infrastructure, the tools or the, the, uh, the capabilities of finding any of those bodies, right? Or the people who have been so injured so so like deeply injured whether it's physical injury or social emotional injuries that they will never recover and live any kind of life that is close to normal after what they've experienced right we're not even thinking about the social emotional and and like the the toll that this is taking on Palestinian children that to the point where there's a code now a special word that is being used to describe kids who are only the only survivors of their families and, and what that's going to look like. And the fact that winter is already there and they have no food and no water and none of these other humanitarian issues that we're not having conversations about and what the long-term implications of that is on both us here in America and the Palestinian people in Palestine. And so those are things that we need to bring to the forefront and have conversations about across the board. I don't think that we have the luxury anymore of being silent and wondering if we need to have these conversations. We need to have these conversations now and we need to organize and have them together as a collective. I feel better with some of those action points. And I feel like we can get started on a lot of those contacting our districts and our schools, attending our school board meetings. A lot of them are virtual now. Mm -hmm. So it's not that hard to attend them and to be able to speak in when they uh, give community time. And even if it's not related to whatever's on their agenda, I think it's perfectly appropriate to go up and say, hey, I think we need a safe space for our students to decompress and to maybe go because they've heard something in a class that's really hard or they've heard something from a classmate that is disturbing. And the person who's receiving them is responsible for reporting whatever happened, because you're right, it is grossly underreported, which is why if it is, if you're hiding what happened, then the district has no fuel to do anything. So we have to give them uh, incidents 
so that they can actually act because otherwise we do have a legal case against them. So we're hoping that change can be made, lasting change can be made. And in the meantime, that we can support each other and especially, especially, especially support our kids so that, like you said, their identity is not weaponized against them so that the dehumanization of them is not then weaponized against uh, completely defenseless population of civilians right now. I think in numbers, right? There's power in numbers because I've gone to our district and I've spoken to a superintendent one-on-one. I've been speaking to him for three years. And I think what it sounds like to them is that you're the, the the parent with the problem versus we have a community Right. And there yes. are allies in this community. It should not just be Muslim voices. There are so many people in support of our children. And and there's a, an interest convergence. I think we need to talk about it's unfortunate that they have to have an interest. But the reality is we are the only country in the world right now that has to prepare our babies for school shootings. No other country mm-hmm. in the world. We consider ourselves this like leading country and the superpower. And then we talk about countries that are third world, third world countries. And I do that with air quotes, too, are not having to prepare their kids for school shootings. There's a reason why in America. And it's not because that we are five percent of the world's population, but 40 percent of its prison population. And we are leveraging and creating fear around black and brown bodies across the board through our curriculum and through our politics and through our media. And there's an interest for every parent, no matter what color your child is and what religious background they are, for us to really work against that. Because you send your child to school regardless of as a parent and you wonder if you're going to see your child again. That's the reality Mm -hmm. of our country right now. At every level, we have seen school shootings from elementary school to college level. And the only way, and I, and I, and this is what I teach my students because we teach a social justice curriculum um, in our district. And, and that's what I've been doing for years is when we have fear elevated, people's rationale is, is not there anymore. And so what drives you is that fear. And the only way to really get rid of fear is through education and understanding and humanizing. Yes. And everything we do in America, whether it's the political system or the educational system, dehumanizes black and brown bodies in order for us to continue to preserve a status quo that has existed with the implement, with the with the formation of this country. And the only way that's going to end is if we unsilo ourselves as communities of color and marginalized communities, and we come to the forefront asking for the same thing. Because all of these things that we're advocating for for Arab and Muslim kids are not just good for Arab and Muslim kids; they're good for every child. Yes. And I always say school shooters do not look like our children. They are primarily white young men who are coming from middle class affluent communities who feel like they are unseen in their communities and come back to hurt their communities. They don't look like us. And so these things that we are advocating for are in support of those boys too. And we are as a country in need of implementing structures and schools that really heal the social emotional health and create communities based on understanding and not fear of all bodies so that we have communities that are built on love and not hate, because that's what we're seeing the the, the uh, product of now as we speak as a country, right? This is not a Muslim interest or an Arab interest or a Palestinian interest or a black interest or a Latin interest. This is an American interest. And we have to see that interest convergence as a community. And that's the point that we need to be speaking from. You have an interest in serving our communities because all the only thing that hate and violence breeds is more hate and violence, right? We're I not mean. Being, yeah. And that's, so that's what we need to be talking about. That's what they need to see because somehow we've lost that by politicizing all of these identities and weaponizing them. I absolutely love that from your mouth to God's ears. And, you know, mm-hmm. the one thing I took I took from that is if there isn't a seat at the table for you people, bring, make your own table and get the job done. So I definitely appreciate your perspective, um, Dr. Sosun, and coming here 
you know, with hopefully we've provided you an opportunity to state your piece in a, you know, in a very peaceful, respectful way, because I know it is hard for the people that are doing the work. Um, you know, we're, we're experiencing that burnout ourselves, um, literally where we have to physically and shut down. And we're not down. even Palestinian. And we're not so even like, Palestinian. We can't even imagine what yeah. you're going through right now. So, yeah, you know, I, I mean. Say, I'm going to say that in talking to teachers across the country, there are so many people that are willing to do this work. And it's really contrary yes. to what we, we believe. I just think that we just need to create spaces where we can hear each other out and give teachers the opportunity because there is not a single teacher that I know of. And I've worked with a lot of teachers in a lot of different countries and a lot of different spaces who comes to school with the intention of harming children, no matter yes. who they are. They yes. all love kids. If you're an educator, you're not in it for the money. You're not in it because it's an easy job. It's one of the hardest professions in the world. And they mean well, but that doesn't negate well-intentioned harmful impact. So yes. in order for us to really kind of create a buffer and and, and really Im kind of stop this, this unintentional harmful impact, it is all rooted in education. There's liberation in education. We already know that. And so I think we have just kind of been so afraid of speaking up and speaking out and we've left our narrative to be told by others. And so it's been butchered mm -hmm. and reshaped and, and monstrosized and weaponized. We just need to reclaim that narrative and really do the work. As And it's unfortunate that we have to do the work as we mourn in silence and as we are facing all of the kind of emotional all of these different things that we are dealing with and in addition still have to teach and advocate, but that's just the reality. But if we are willing to do that work, I would say that a lot of, a lot of people, especially here in America, they're willing to listen and they're willing mm -hmm. to act with us. And we're seeing the impacts of that on a larger scale, just through the impacts of social media. So I, I would like to believe, and I do believe that there are more good people willing to really serve every child in the ways that they need to be served than there are people who are just so hold like deeply rooted in their racism that they can't see past it. But we just need to do the work as a collective, both sides, right? Absolutely. Well, thank you so much for your expertise, your articulate conversation today. Like I feel 10,000 times smarter after having you on today. And I'm just so, so grateful that you came on, helped us, gave us the educators perspective, the Palestinian perspective on what's going on and gave us some PowerPoints, some things that we can do to take back our power. So we appreciate you so much. We're praying for your pa uh, family in Palestine and the diaspora and inshallah, um, may we say peace soon. Thank you so much for everything, Thank Dr. You. Jabber. Thank you both. I appreciate you both. Thank you for having me. Thanks everyone for listening. Assalamu alaikum. Thanks again for joining Zeba and Uzman Mommy while Muslim today. Please email us your thoughts or questions and follow us on Facebook and Instagram because this podcast was designed to cater your needs. Make sure you check out the show notes to find the links and resources for this episode. And remember to help a mama out and leave a review of the show, as well as to like it on your podcast app of choice, because that helps us grow. Tune in next week for another episode of Mommy While Muslim. Assalamu alaikum, everyone.